We welcome Johnny Morris to the program. He is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association here in British Columbia. Johnny, good morning. Thanks for joining us. It's good to have you with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Sterling, and a good morning to you. Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the year that was. We're just around the corner. Blue Monday will doubtless work its way into our conversation going forward here, Johnny, but it's it's a year like none of us have ever experienced. So talk to us about the, the, the sum total of, of the cost, if you will, to the mental health of Canadians that 2020 has exacted. Um, that's, that's a great question, Sterling, and it's something that the Canadian Mental Health Association has been focused on right from the start of this pandemic. Um, your question about the sum cost, um, what we're knowing is the, the pandemic overall um, has had um, a massive impact upon the mental health of Canadians across the country mm-hmm. and here in British Columbia, with about 40% of Canadians um, saying that their mental health has deteriorated or gotten worse um, since the start of the pandemic. Um, and people experiencing more vulnerability, you know, people living with a pre-existing mental health problem or people living with a disability are among some of the folks hardest hit by the mental health impacts of this pandemic. I would think people living alone, too, would be uh, considered to be more vulnerable just by virtue of that solitude. Absolutely, Sterling. I, I think we've known for a long time that isolation, uh, being alone, and, and of course, you know, one of the unintended consequences of not being able to connect socially, as we stay safe from the virus, yeah. um, has, has absolutely impacted people. That isolation is, is a, totally a big factor, too. So talk to us about what the, what the Canadian Mental Health Association has been able to do. The big word for 2020 appears, the big verb, Johnny, is pivot. So how has mental health uh, here in British Columbia managed to pivot to be of more benefit to more people, clearly, who are knocking on your door yeah we are we are absolutely with our partners and community seeing more people knock on our door we pivoted quickly here in bc with um, an investment from the province the ministry of mental health and addictions to stand up and as you say pivot quickly mm-hmm. um, with a range of services um, we've expanded bounce back it's one of our depression um, anxiety and mood care services it's delivered by the phone by coaches across the province um, we've been seeing in the beginning over 100% more Canadians compared to last year referring into that program. And we're tracking around 40 to 60% more people currently. It's a proven program, again, designed to help um, support people with their mood um, throughout the pandemic. Um, and we've been able to stand that up and, and expand it rapidly. Um, we've also been able to um, support community agencies um, with community counseling. Sterling, for so many, um, money is an access issue yeah. when it comes to, to accessing counseling. We've been able to expand that again uh, with the support of the province. Um, I think many of us recognize pivoting was so critical cause, because mental health has been one of the, the most talked about impacts. Um, alongside others um, throughout uh, the COVID-19 um, experience and pandemic. Well, Johnny, it's interesting, too, because as you identify uh, the various measures that uh, CMHA has undertaken to be of more benefit to more Canadians, uh, I think, and you you talk about people with preconditions, mental health issues, those sorts of things, being even more vulnerable during these prolonged periods of, of isolation and so on. But I think the thing that most 
of us are surprised by, Johnny, even if you're just a typical person with enough money to get by and and a, and a, a comfortable enough life to, to be able to see yourself through to the end of this thing, whenever that may be, even people in that extremely fortunate position, Johnny, are feeling incredibly beset upon, frustrated, almost at the end of, of their tether, simply because it's been so long and we've been so restricted. Yes, I, I, I think in, in so many ways, uh, what this pandemic has taught us, I mean, the, the emphasis has been upon protecting our bodies from, from the virus. Of course. Um, but for, for I think for the first time in my career in mental health, what's happened is um, the conversation about the impact upon our mental health. And you're right, Sterling, for, for, for many who have access to resources, who, um, who, who have the um, ability to ask for help, et cetera, um, across the general population, um, we are seeing profound impacts upon mental health. I mean, just the reality of, for many, uh, grappling with the Herculean task of a full-time job sure. at home whilst parenting uh, with kids um, um, who have had to have been schooled at home, um, that's, that's a stressor that uh, uh, many of us have never contemplated um, for this period of time um, due to circumstances that are beyond our control. Um, and so that, that absolutely um, is, has been a remarkable thing. And I think, Sterling, thinking of the healthcare workers across this province, and just to bring, bring that experience to the fore in this interview, working in circumstances that, again, um, for many are unimaginable, sure. the, the acute stress um, of worrying about uh, bringing the virus home, bringing the virus into, into the workplace, and your own mental health and physical health, uh, profound experiences. Well, indeed, and, and one thinks particularly, and, and we, we are, again, despite the, uh, the number of cases that Dr. Bonnie Henry and uh, Mr. Dix bring to our attention on more or less daily basis, and we take a look at some of the numbers coming out of the United States, and you, and you take a look at frontline healthcare workers and those conditions where they have refrigerated trucks for morgues outside the backs of, of hospitals, mm-hmm. and, and these people literally uh, go to work every day and have people die of uh, under their care. Um, and, and we don't have the same staggering statistics that they do in the United States, Johnny, but it doesn't matter. It's still the same thing that still has the same effect, ultimately, on those frontline workers. Yes, uh, we, we launched a project as part of that pivot called Care for Caregivers with Partners Safe Care in the province, the Ministry of Mental Health early on. And um, part of that out of early recognition that healthcare workers are seeing things, experiencing things, responding to things um, that will have impacts that will live on from some time. After all, we're vaccinated. Um, those of us who, who get vaccinated um, throughout this year, um, those things that you're describing, Sterling, are, are key. I mean, we were, we were hearing the other day about healthcare workers here in BC treating their colleagues who have, um, who have um, um, been, been infected with the virus. Right. And, and that's huge, right? So that's why services. And I think the conversation that we're having this morning, uh, Sterling, um, is so critical to, to um, push back on the stigma that still exists around talking about mental health 
substance use and what's going on around us. And in terms of talking too, Johnny, um, men typically less forthcoming uh, when it comes to just having a, a frank discussion about what's going on inside your head and, and how, how things get pretty messed up. Uh, are you noticing that, that gender gap still going forward, the reluctance still, again, with the stigmatism in mind uh, of, of males? Yeah, um, we see that, I think, in, in, in a lot of ways in, in who, who accesses our services. And I think um, for a long time, many of us have been worried about um, how easy it is for men to uh, reach out and, and access help. And, and we, of course, see the, the, uh, the devastating consequences of, of, of those challenges when it comes to um, the ongoing opioid crisis here in this province and also um, uh, suicide. It's, it's so key and to have, to have you, Sterling, raise that here too, um, you know, points to the fact that there are resources that, that do exist. There's a, there's a number of things available here in the province, um, you know, Bounce Back being one example mm-hmm. uh, that we have where it's, it's okay for men to, to come forward um, and, and speak about what they're experiencing um, to, to seek a pass forward to, to help that is available um, to help folks cope and manage. Johnny Morris is with us this morning. Mr. Morris is the CEO of the Canadian Mental Health Association of British Columbia. And Johnny, I just just for your thoughts, as we were talking about the the burden that Canadians find themselves feeling under and carrying in many cases through this prolonged pandemic that shows no real signs of, of relief until the Prime Minister's talking about now September, when all of us who want one will have a shot, that might cause a, a certain degree of ability to take a deeper breath. I have a friend, though, Johnny, who writes a blog for investors. And uh, he we're recommending people, you know, how to invest their money to, to, to enjoy a, a comfortable retirement and so on. And for those people who are on his subscriber list, who can't stand the daily ups and downs of stock value going up one day, down another, he says his simple advice is turn off the business channel. Don't watch it. You can't control it. You have to trust us who are handling your money for you that will see it through with a with a good long-term plan. In the meantime, don't torture yourself on a daily basis. Turn off the darn TV. Now, is this advice sometimes recommended for people who contact the Canadian Mental Health Association with just anxiety issues, Johnny, all day long? Yes, Sterling, your your colleague, um, your colleague's advice around uh, moderating or controlling the amount of exposure you have to that up and down applies in some ways to um, our exposure to to whether it be the news or social media feeds, et cetera. Uh, that kind of co- constant drip drip of information yeah. um, absolutely impacts um, how we're doing and how we're feeling about the world. Now, we're not saying. Um, you know, to kind of uh, bury our heads in the sand and be unaware um, because there's a lot of good information that comes through those channels. But also to, to moderate our intake, to, to be mindful of the consumption um, of all of that it, it is a one thing that we can do to take some control back over how um, our mental health responds to that. So your, your colleague is absolutely onto something ar- around um, writing this out for the long term and your comment about the vaccine, there is hope, right? There is hope sure. in seeing people get vaccinated. Um, and I think recognizing that, you know, that goalpost shifts and changes a little bit based upon what's happening outside in the world to kind of 
take that deep breath, um, lean into those resources and connect with each other um, and moderate that intake um, is, is, I think, um, what we've been saying is, is a good idea, Sterling. Yeah, it's interesting. And I was just, just looking at this Blue Monday phenomenon, getting doing a little homework last night, getting ready for you this morning, Johnny, and stumbled across a whole whack of stuff about Blue Monday and how to survive the saddest day of the year <laughs> and all this, that, and the other thing. That kind of media malarkey is not really helpful in the middle of a pandemic now is it no and and the sad i think the saddest day of the year in blue monday is has been debunked as a bit of a myth um, rather than a reality and and i think um was used historically as a as an opportunity to get people to travel to warmer climes um it it does prompt a conversation but you're right sterling i mean a blue monday right in the middle of a pandemic where I think for many of your listeners, they'd say, I've had lots of Blue Mondays. No like, kidding. Why this, why this Monday? Um, it, it does start a conversation, though, about um, how, how we're doing with our mental health um, at this time of year, um, what we can do to take care of ourselves and each other. But to place too much emphasis on one day of the year, we, we, we often we often advise against because, you know, folks experience this on a daily basis. Well, exactly. And of course, Blue Monday in, in its inception or, or where it came from, of course, had a lot more to do with the midwinter blahs and seasonal affective disorder uh, than anything pandemic related. It just happens the pandemic has sort of piled on on top of all the rest of it. Uh, absolutely. And and you use a really important uh, word there. You know, for, for many people um, in this province um, and in other latitudes, um, seasonal affective disorder, uh, the experience of a seasonal shift in mood related to depression is a very real experience. You bet. And, um, um, and important to note that there are good things out there that can help, you know, um, uh, chatting with your GP, um, investing in, in um, light therapy, if that's re- recommended. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, um, you know, a big campaign tomorrow um, with Participation Canada, um, moving our bodies where we can. And, and that's, that's something that, that thankfully for, for, for a, a number of folks is available um, right now with being outside, particularly in, here in BC where we're not shoveling. That's as right. you said, we're not shoveling snow. Yeah, and, and uh, physical activity is such an antidote for so many issues that uh, uh, sometimes just a nice walk um, uh, in the fresh air can make, uh, uh, make some of those problems uh, take the weight off, uh, some of the weight off your shoulders, can't it, Johnny? Yeah, there was coverage a couple of weeks ago about... Um, um, physicians now prescribing they're saying take a couple of hikes and call me back tomorrow <laughs> um, th- there's there's a, there's so much research to show that um, within the within the means that our bodies have of course being careful and all that kind of thing moving our bodies whether it be a walk whether it be a hike whether it be a um, an exercise class um, are, are so important um, for uh, boosting the chemicals in our bodies that really impact how we feel and our mood and of course, all of the good things that it does to our hearts and our lungs and all of that. So, you know, to hear doctors saying, yep, take a couple of hikes and give me a call back and let me know how you're doing. Um, I think is a ringing endorsement of how important physical activity is right now. Well, take a couple of hikes. It used to be take a couple of aspirins. So I like the way the advice is. I love the general direction that it's moving. Johnny, it's so good to have you with us this morning. And before we let you go, I'd like you to just spend a couple of minutes talking to us about bounce back, because it strikes me as being one of the primary contact points. If a person is in 
distress, just experiencing depression or other um, uh, mental health issues, and and the, there's there's an understanding that I I really do need to talk to another human being. This is getting too weird. Bounce back is a good contact point. Tell us about it. Yeah. So as I as I as I leave you this morning, bounce back. It's a free skill building program. Here in BC, um, you, you don't need a doctor to access it. You can go to bouncebackbc.ca. It's not a fit for everyone, but it is a fit for folks who are looking to manage low mood, mild to moderate depression, anxiety, and stress. And, and it's remarkable because you get paired up with a human being, mm-hmm. a coach, who walks alongside you for a few weeks um, and longer if necessary um, through a program that's really designed to help, um, and it's proven to help manage those skills. So Bounce Back BC, so bouncebackbc.ca is the website folks could go. Just my final thing, um, if folks are listening in and, and they're really worried about their mental health, their own or a loved one, 310-6789 is another really important number for your listeners to know, 310 310- Six seven eight nine. That will connect you to your your local crisis line as well. So bounce back and um, crisis lines that are available. Resources that are there to help uh, across uh, British Columbia, Sterling. Excellent stuff. Three ten six seven eight nine. The crisis line number and bounce back BC. Johnny Morris, CEO of Canadian Mental Health Association here in British Columbia. Thank you for getting up early and having this very important conversation, Johnny. I'm I'm grateful for your time, and we will do this again. Sterling, your, your excellent questions are powerful, and, and thanks so much for, for featuring mental health um, on your show this morning across two segments. It's, it's really important, and take good care, um, and all the best to you and your listeners. Thanks, Johnny. Stay safe. We'll talk again. Joined on the line by Catherine Leung. Catherine is a public relations director with the new Hong Kong Cultural Club, here to talk to us about more on the future of Hong Kong, Canada-China relations, and the new foreign minister, Mark Garneau. Catherine Leung, good morning and welcome. Good morning, Sterling. Thank you for having me, and thank you for your ongoing concern for Hong Kong. Well, it's a pleasure to have you with us, Catherine, and this is uh, certainly something that we on this program have been following very carefully for quite some time. Uh, And I note that, uh, first of all, let's just uh, start from square one. Who is, or what is, the new Hong Kong Cultural Club, Catherine, please? The New Hong Kong Cultural Club is a grassroots organization here in Calgary, and we do most of our work involving raising awareness here in Canada, as well as helping refugees from Hong Kong settle in. So, and you have chapters not only in Alberta, but also in British Columbia and Ontario, correct? Yes, that's right. So, uh, and I know, uh, how long uh, how long has the organization been around? We've been around since around August of 2019, as soon as the movement began. Okay, so this is all about supporting democracy and pro-democracy people in Hong Kong, correct? Yes, that's right. So now, uh, you have you been able in some way to contact people in Hong Kong? I know that the government of Canada, Catherine, is, uh, is inclined to have an open-door policy for asylum for people from Hong Kong. Tell us more about what you understand the Canadian policy to be. Yes. So the official government statistic is that we have 49 accepted refugee cases as of June 30th of 2019. They don't update the numbers unless we have over 20 cases to protect the privacy and safety of applicants. But we do have 14 new refugees approved as of last week. 
Okay, and these are people, have they made it to Canada yet, or are they still in Hong Kong? Some of them, yes. Some of them are still in other parts of the world as well. Okay, uh, and I, I suppose the, the reason I'm asking these questions in a circuitous sort of way, Catherine, is as, as we understand it here in Canada, it's, it's becoming very, very difficult for pro-democracy supporters to escape Hong Kong when uh, the authorities are after them. Is that still the case? Yes, it is. And what can you tell us then? But I suppose um, the support that you're able to provide from this distance, tell us about what you're able to do from Canada. We do a lot of our work surrounding helping them with the application process of their refugee claims, as well as supplying food, accommodations, utilities, and things like that as they come into Canada and helping them adjust to life here. Okay. Now tell us a little bit more, if you can, about the the protest movement in Hong Kong. Because, Catherine, we saw uh, moments perhaps a, a year or more ago now where the streets of the city were full of protesters day after day. Uh, they were they, There was a, a, a momentum developing where you could sense a, a point of, of conflict evolving. And then, of course, the pandemic came along and sideswiped a lot of the activity, but certainly had no impact at all on the on the desire of the activists in Hong Kong to maintain their pro-democracy stance. So what's the status today? Today, it is very hard for people to come out on the streets in Hong Kong because not only of the pandemic, but also of the national security law. The crackdown is more severe than ever we've seen before. And you can get arrested for things such as carrying an umbrella, which they classify as a weapon these Mm. days. Yes. So our desire for freedom has never waned and never will. But the means that we have to undertake these activities has changed. A lot of um, the pro-democracy movement now has shifted to the international front with increasing exiles going to various parts of the world. Right. Yes, and we have lobbied with foreign governments to intervene. So does, is Canada one of the few foreign governments that is accepting uh, people who are fleeing Hong Kong and democracy protesters uh, who are, uh, is Australia, for example, also uh, does demonstrating an open door policy to these individuals as well? Canada is definitely one of the more welcoming governments. We also have exiles in the UK and in various parts of the EU. I don't know about Australia personally, but yes, there are other parts of the world that take them. Interesting. So what is the official position of Ottawa? And we'll get into the new guy, Mark Garneau, replacing Philippe-Francois Champagne in a few minutes. But the government of Canada, with respect to uh, how did they express this support and this supposed open-door policy? Yes, so we do have the Canada Lifeboat Scheme that should be oncoming soon. And we do have various refugees that have successfully come into Canada and settled down so that we have good precedent for oncoming exiles from Hong Kong. And so the policy, if anything, uh, is are you you're somewhat optimistic that the policy is going to become even more um, fixed in as a Canadian uh, uh, sort of the, the way we do business? Yes, I hope to see more improvement, of course, but we do have good track record. Um, it's a little concerning to me that the foreign minister, Champagne, before mm-hmm. has 
consistently expressed his concern for Hong Kong without actually implementing any policies as to how we will help Hong Kongers as well as other oppressed groups in China. Yeah, and of course, that, and that's another important uh, factor to recall because there are other Canadian groups uh, protesting, for example, the treatment of the Uyghurs in, in Mongolia and uh, other groups that are uh, being forced into, um, well, for the lack of a better f- phrase, concentration camps. Uh, so uh, w- let's talk a little bit about the the sentiment that you sense here in Canada. The government of Canada uh, found itself in a very unpopular situation, Catherine, a couple of months ago, and they poll relentlessly. They spend great gobs of money on public public opinion polls, and were very surprised a few months ago to discover that 80%, 80% of Canadians disagreed with their approach to China. They said, we're being far too soft. We need to develop a spine and stand up to some of these people. So the government is trying to factor that reality, the way Canadians feel, into their policy. They've got an election they want to pull off this year, so they need to appear to be tougher. Are they doing anything really or changing the rhetoric? I believe they are changing the rhetoric, Sterling. Everything that Beijing does is a contradiction to Canadian values. Democracy versus dictatorship, liberty versus total control, and rule of law versus rule by law. So there is no reason for Canadians or the Canadian government to be so involved in China at all. They are not our friend. They never have been. Interesting. That's a position that I've taken on this program since day one, Catherine. It's so nice to hear someone else say this, exactly the same thing. I don't know, and I appreciate that we still, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big world in which we all need to coexist to some degree of harmony just to keep from World War III. We get all that, but there's also an agenda at play here that China is very rapidly advancing in other parts of the world that for some reason Canada seems quite capable of turning a blind eye a blind eye to too frequently yes the economic part of it is a big part for a lot of people they think that we can't live without china Mm -hmm. economically but that is not true we have many other ways of getting um cheaper commodities from other parts of the world without using slave labor we're joined on the line by Catherine Leung, who is the public relations director with the New Hong Kong Cultural Club. And Catherine, I'm looking at your Facebook page, and uh, you, you dive in a little bit and dig around. You find out things like our mission to care for the well-being of Hong Kong. We will gather the like-minded friends all over, standing united together, and fight for Hong Kong's future. And I'm skipping down to another paragraph, and it says, "Free Hong Kong! It is the revolution of our times. Are not." just merely slogans. They live within us every day. And we talked momentarily about the national security law that has come in since the protests, the pro-democracy protests began over a year ago. Uh, has that uh, uh, that new regime under the new law uh, pretty much shut down all of the protesting, Catherine, or are there still pockets of protests that occur from time to time? Well, Sterling, a lot of the protest resistance efforts in Hong Kong takes place not just on the streets, but also on social media. We do a lot of education towards the public, especially internationally, to inform them of exactly what is going on in Hong Kong. We also have things such as leaden walls in Hong Kong that people write their sentiments on and encourage each other to keep on resisting. 
Ah, so let's talk a bit, though, about uh, because we have seen uh, the, the protests and we've also seen the introduction of this new national security law from Beijing. Uh, how has that changed the tone uh, in Hong Kong? Because as we understand it from this distance, uh, we, Catherine, is, is it a total clampdown? Yes, pretty much. Anything can now be a crime under the national security law, succession, subversion, collusion with a foreign power, as well as anything that speaks out against the Chinese Communist Party is a crime now. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the one of the big um, parts of the national security law that was most disconcerting for Hong Kongers, as I recall, Catherine, was this notion of that if you were apprehended in Hong Kong for a crime uh, and, and pick one, that you would not necessarily be tried in Hong Kong. You might be removed from Hong Kong to another location in the country and tried there where your chances for acquittal would be close to zero. Yes. China does not operate on rule of law. They operate on rule by law. Anything that they say in the courts will stand. They don't need precedent. They don't need case law. They don't do the courts the way we do. And a lot of the times there are closed door hearings as well. So they can say anything. Sure. And there are only um, state sponsored reporters that will tell you what happened without you actually knowing what's going on in the courts. Mm-hmm. So, uh, again, as a result of all of that, the the uh, the protests became particularly acute when it became very clear that this was going to be a part of the way things would be handled going forward, that you would be removed from the jurisdiction and tried elsewhere, and in many cases, probably never seen from again. Yes, exactly. That's why a lot of the times our friends in Hong Kong are very cautious of whether they come out on the streets and things like that, because you have to first survive in order to resist. Yeah, let's bring the conversation back here to Canada. We had a fellow named Charles Burton on the program a couple of weeks ago, Catherine. Mm-hmm. Mr. Burton used to work at the Canadian Embassy in Beijing. He was a counselor there twice for two, for two years each time, and now is with the Macdonald Laurier Institute. And I asked Charles about the protests. And of course, here in Vancouver, we have an enormous Chinese community. And so when there is a protest, for example, above, in support of democracy in Hong Kong, uh, typically it'll be a fairly large group. It's plenty of TV coverage, but also simultaneously, typically, there is a smaller group of counter-protesters in support of Beijing. And so I asked Mr. Burton, what should we do about these people, these counter-protesters? And he said something very odd. He said, we should protect those people because they are counter-protesting. They're under pressure from a foreign government on our soil to protest in favor of that foreign government, and if they don't, consequences will happen to them. Many of them are international students here on visas, and uh, threats will be made against their families back home. Mr. Burton said, we ought not to be looking out down our noses at these people. If anything, they deserve our protection. They're even more vulnerable than the people who are protesting. What do you make yes, of that? He is right in a sense that the Chinese government will have consequences for you if you do not do by their wishes. And it must be mentioned that a lot of these Chinese nationals have been indoctrinated from a very young age, and all they know is dictatorship and tyranny. So to them, things that we are protesting for does not make sense. Sure. Yes. It's a matter of a bird that has never flown will not want to come out of the cage. 
That's a very interesting uh, metaphor. <laughs> I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms, but it's very true, I suppose. But still, uh, the other part of the conversation, and we don't have a lot of time left, but really is the degree of interference by Beijing in Canadian life. Not only stealing our, our technical, technical and economic secrets, what they've been doing for decades, but actually interfering in politics at the federal, municipal, provincial level. They got their fingers in all the pies. Yes, they do. It, Chinese infiltration is a huge problem in Canada, as, especially with our, this is going to be controversial, but our immigration policy allows for anyone that fits the criteria to come in, and that includes a lot of Chinese nationals. They, their ideology is very shut towards our ideals of democracy, freedom, liberty, things like that. Mm-hmm. And all they know is dictatorship and tyranny, and they will not let go of this because it is unsafe for them to do so in their minds. They have seen what happens to people that speak up for freedom, such as in Tiananmen Square, and they just cannot risk it. But that is no excuse now that they are on Canadian soil, that they are free from this suppression to make people not want to protest because of their counter-protest. Right, right. And, and at the same time, of course, they have no sense of what free It's like the bird in the cage. Uh, they have no sense of what freedom is, never having experienced it ever. Yes, exactly. Interesting stuff. Catherine Leung, how do we find you online, the new Hong Kong Cultural Club? Point us in in your direction. The new Hong Kong Cultural Club is on Twitter at NHKCC1, as well as our website, NHKCC.ca. Okay, and you have a Facebook page because I've been uh, all over that uh, during our conversation as well. Thanks for joining us this morning, Catherine. Very good to talk to you and to get to know a little bit about your organization. I have a feeling we'll do this again. Thanks. Thank you, Sterling. There's Catherine Lee Young joining us from Calgary this morning where they have a chapter, as they do in Toronto and Vancouver, of the new Hong Kong Cultural Club. Jerry Vitoratis is on the line. Jerry Vitoratis is back with us, I should say, from UFile to talk taxes in a, at the end of a very strange year that is doubtless going to pose more than a few issues for tax filers in a few months' time. Jerry, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Thank you for having me back. Well, it's good to have you back with us, Jerry. Before we start into the specifics of uh, and the dozens of questions, of course, uh, how about you take a first go at 2020 and the kind of year that it's been, and not just from a tax perspective, but definitely include that as well. I mean, it's obviously been a, a challenging year for for many of us, right? I mean, it, it's it's completely fundamentally changed the dynamic of the workplace, essentially. So mm-hmm. now, whereas before we would have, you know, offices that we would go to work at, we would have commutes and 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 all that uh, type of uh, things. Now, you know, it, it's a compl- it's a complete paradigm shift as far as how we work, in the sense of that now we work from home and. Uh, it's also a shift as as far as how the government has reacted uh, to uh, to this kind of uh, calamity, especially when it comes to the benefits that they paid out. Indeed. Well, so you have this combination of a, a dramatically changed workforce, many of us working from home, and of course, Jerry, many of us still not working, and that's a 
whole other issue. But then you've got uh, the, the the benefit packages rolling in for assistance for people who are uh, in experiencing financial difficulty, again, through no fault of their own. So as you are starting to field questions already, it's only mid-January and with the deadline's not till the end of April. Uh, what are people most curious about at this early stage of getting themselves organized after 2020? So what they're most curious about is is how the benefits that were paid out last year are gonna are gonna affect their tax turn this uh, are gonna affect their tax turn filing this year. Sure. So of course you know every year we file our tax return the the, the year after up till April thirtieth like you mentioned, uh, and some of these benefits that were paid out last year uh, there's one unfortunate reality especially when it comes to the CERB uh, specifically uh, and maybe the one for the student grant as well. Uh, the unfortunate reality is that there were no withholdings held at source mm-hmm. for those payments. Uh, and, th- and there's going to be, unfortunately, quite a shock for a lot of Canadians who receive those benefits. Because remember, you know, a, a tax return is at its base a reconciliation statement. You're determining whether you pay too much or whether you pay too little. Mm-hmm. When, you're, when you're making your employment income, your employer withholds tax at source and you've effectively paid your tax for the year. Sure. And then when you file your return, you decide. You determine which is which. Did you pay too much or too little? With a CRB, you've automatically paid too little. Why? Because you've paid nothing. You've essentially paid no income tax at source on those benefits. And unfortunately, you will have to pay that tax lump sum when you file your tax return April 30th. Yeah, the difference, though, could be, Jerry, to the advantage of that person in that particular pickle. It could be, though, that because you did receive CERB or other government assistance, it's because you didn't have your regular cash flow. And that might bring you in at the end of the year in in a lower income rate, still with taxable issues to deal with. But if your income overall was lower, then you would be paying less tax. That's small comfort, but it would it would be true, wouldn't it? Yes. So your overall tax bill uh, will likely be lower. Absolutely. Because a lot of people who are collecting the CERB, it's very likely the CERB was nowhere near uh, the amount that they were collecting under their normal employment. Right. Uh, the catch, though, is going to be, uh, so over the overall tax bill, absolutely. You're absolutely right. But the, the catch will be, though, they will still have to pay a lump sum amount, regardless of how much lower that tax is going to be. Because with their employment, they've already prepaid their tax. Uh, with the CERB, they have not. So they're still going to have an amount owing on that tax return. And for a lot of Canadians, you know, most Canadians usually get refunds, especially those who are employed. Right. Uh, now they're going to have to pay, and they're not used to that. That's the unfortunate part. Uh, okay. And uh, now it was the CERB was uh, uh, that was a taxable benefit, and it was it, it as I recall was discontinued in the early fall, around the end of September, and replaced by something called the Canada Recovery Benefit. What's the difference between that and uh, EI? Jerry? Well, the recovery benefits for those who were not eligible to claim EI, because essentially with EI, you would have to have worked a certain number of hours in order to collect EI. Okay. Those who fell under the CERB essentially had no working hours, and if they simply migrated over to the Canada Recovery Benefit, uh, then that, that was the purpose of that recovery benefit. Because those on CERB have no employment hours, it was a benefit on its own, well, then they go on the recovery benefit, and, and essentially, you know, that, that replaces EI. 
EI to a certain extent. Uh, so again, it's, it's simply an extension of CERB. That's okay. really all the recovery benefit was. But as they changed it from CERB into the Canada recovery benefit, you've already pointed out that CERB was a completely taxable benefit. The new one or the replacement, the Canada recovery benefit, Jerry, is it too in the same situation as CERB where it's also 100% taxable or were, were there any withholdings by the feds on that second round? So that's the good news. Uh, so the good news is, yes, it's taxable, but there were some withholdings at source done with the recovery benefit. So that was the good news there. So at least there won't be that shock when it comes to, that, to the recovery benefit. So that, that, that was great news. I think, the, I think the government realized what they had done at that point, mm-hmm. and they essentially corrected uh, the measure. And, of course, there is the, uh, the, uh, the problem, and it's been identified. It's not a massive problem, but it certainly is a big one if it landed in your lap. And that's a CERB payment to a person uh, who was uh, determined uh, at the end of the day to not have been in, in need of them. And then there's going to be a complete repayment required, and that's going to be tough. That's going to be very tough because these people, you know, essentially they needed that money to live, right? You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, because the the program was rolled out quickly, a lot of people did not understand what the the eligibility rules were. Right. And the the CRA also did not uh, explain properly in this case. What the what the rules were either. So, yes, it, it'll be it'll be very tough for those individuals. I'm sure uh, we don't know as of yet uh, how they're going to be collecting those payments. I would doubt that there there would be any interest charges on it. I would be shocked if the government actually charged interest on it. Sure. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that they'll at least allow these individuals to go on installment payments to be able to pay it back. Exactly. Uh, by the way, you just mentioned April or April 30th again. That is our typical tax deadline in Canada. That was changed last year. Are you expecting it to go back to a hard and fixed April 30th, or might there be some flexibility again this time? You know, I think there's still uh, some leeway for flexibility. I think purely because of the CERB. I, I think, if anything, my feeling, and again, this, this is just my educated guess. It's, right. not, a, it's not actual fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, my educated guess would be that the amount owing, they might push the amount owing deadline. Because remember that the April 30th deadline is, your, is effectively your filing deadline when you owe money, right? When mm-hmm. you owe to the CRA, that's your deadline date right. in order to uh, not pay any interest. My feeling, and again, I'm just, and I'm hoping to be honest, I'm more hoping than anything else. Uh, I'm hoping that the CRA will extend uh, the amount owing deadline past April 30th. That's my hope. Ah, okay. Let's talk a little bit about work from home. That was one of the very first things you mentioned as we began this conversation about how the COVID has changed the entire dynamic of the Canadian workforce. So many of us are working from home. Now, there are some tax advantages to that. Uh, I understand, for example, there's uh, it's, it's almost an automatic $400 tax uh, credit for supplies and basically taking care of that new work-from-home reality. Is that the case this year? Yes. So, so what the government announced towards the end of the year uh, is an amendment to an existing deduction. Okay, so, so people who worked from home ordinarily always had what's called employment expenses. Sure. Okay, and essentially what it is, is you're deducting uh, on a prorated basis certain expenditures that you have at home because you're required to work from home according to your employer, mm-hmm. okay, with a, according to the contract you have with your employer. Now, there's a lot of 
administrative red tape in order to be able to claim those deductions. What the government has done is simply make an amendment and add another component to it, which they call the temporary flat rate method, which is the $400 you just mentioned. Okay. But it's not just a simple $400, that's what I claim and that's it. Uh, the way it works is that it's actually $2 per day that you were required to work at home due to COVID up to a $400 deduction, which means you have to have worked you have to have been required to work 200 days in, in, in the year uh, in order to collect the full $400. Now, it's a deduction on your tax return, so it works very similarly to an RSP, okay. which means that you're reducing your taxable income by $400. That's essentially what it means. Uh, now, the, the good news about it is that there's no require, there's no, there's really no administrative requirement. Okay, there's no. Oh, you don't have to show proof of that employer. 200 days then. Yeah, not necessarily. Okay. No, I mean, the only, the only thing that they require you to do is that you have to have worked at least four consecutive weeks at home due to COVID. And then beyond that, you don't have to show any receipts either. Okay. okay that's the good news. So essentially, you know, it's a much more simplified method. And I would recommend for most of your listeners right now, I would recommend go for that temporary flat rate method. Don't go through that administrative process of employment expenses because you could be subject to an audit uh, if you go through what they call the detailed method, which you're still entitled to, uh, but it'll be a lot more, you know, uh, process heavy. Right. So if they just basically say, here, here it is on a silver platter, you go, thank you and move on, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Whatever the government decides to give you, uh, no questions asked, take it. Talking taxes with Jerry Bitteratos from UFile here. Jerry, uh, we talked a lot about personal taxes, the individual taxes, and the benefit programs that were payable to Canadians uh, over the uh, last year. Let's talk a little bit about small business, because there were also some programs the feds came up with for, for businesses, the temporary wage subsidy and the emergency wage subsidy. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how small businesses deal with those. So, so the wage subsidy essentially, you know, the, the name says it all, right? I mean, and both of those subsidies work the same way. Essentially, they, their goal was to reimburse a portion of the salaries that these businesses, you know, uh, had to pay to their employed salary, okay. uh, to, their, to their salaried in, um, employees. And the purpose of it is to keep them employed. That's really what the purpose of those uh, subsidies were. Now, like any other subsidy, like any other government, uh, like any other money, excuse me, that you get from the government, it is a taxable income uh, on their return. So essentially, that wage subsidy has to be added as income uh, to their either corporate return, if they were corporations, or if they're just uh, proprietorships, self-employed proprietorships, they have to be added as income uh, to, uh, to their returns. Here's a, just a filing question, and I don't know the answer. Let's suppose for round numbers, my income is fifty grand, and yet the Horgan government just sent me a thousand bucks because, like, they, they they said they would. So I said, sure. So when I report my yeah. income next year, do I report it as fifty or fifty-one? Given that the one thousand from the province is supposedly tax-free, how do I report that? You don't. That, that's, a, that's, a, that's a simple answer there. So since they had announced that the $1,000 BC recovery benefit is non-taxable, that means you simply do not declare it on the return. That's, uh-huh. actually, the, the, that's actually the, let's say, the quote-unquote procedure. 
Okay, so that also is the same way that people deal with the tax-free savings account that too many of us, unfortunately, are using to save money instead of as an investment vehicle. But any monies that you realize over the course of a year that originate inside that tax-free savings account, they're all yours. You don't have to report those either, do you? No. Exactly. So, so whatever gets accumulated in the tax-free savings account, whatever gains are accumulated there, are tax-free. Uh, normally, if it were taxable, like an RSP, for example, yeah. it's at the withdrawal. When you pull the money out and you put it in your bank account is when normally they would be taxable, but the TFSA is not. It is completely tax-free, and essentially when you pull out that money and put it in your personal bank account, it is completely tax-free. You do not declare it to the CRA. Interesting stuff. Just a sort of random questions here. Uh, I had an email from Colleen here. How will I get my taxes done if no one's working and I don't do them myself? <laughs> That's a fair question. And we had that problem, Jerry, uh, already with our last taxation year. A lot of those, uh, especially shopping mall type locations of H&R Block mm-hmm. and various other tax service providers were simply closed. The COVID protocol said no, no face-to-face stuff this year. So are you expecting more of same this tax return season yes i mean depending on the province uh, that you're in there's there's complete lockdowns right and a lot of these businesses can't even their storefronts can't even stay open right. anymore but uh if you're going to a reputable uh, a reputable pair like an h&r block for example they have uh, they have uh, cloud services in which you can provide them in, in a secure portal with your tax documents, and they can produce your return completely in the cloud. Okay, so there's no need to actually physically go to these offices anymore. Again, these are, you know, the, the reputable uh, preparers ha- are, are already set up uh, to provide that kind of service. So I wouldn't be too worried. Uh, contact your preparer. They should have a means by which you can exchange your documents with them in a secure way through the cloud. Ah, okay. Uh, Back to the benefits uh, portion of the program. If you're still receiving benefits at tax time, again, uh, as as the case with millions of us, Jerry, through no fault of your own, you were in a service industry, for example, that literally you watched your job evaporate. And it's no, there's no yeah. likelihood that it's going to be coming back for the foreseeable future. So you're in this 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 no man's land of of no income except for whatever subsidies or benefits you're able to receive from the government. Uh, that is yeah. definitely uh, going to change your tax profile. Again, we're back to that lower income because any benefits you're receiving are likely less than what you used to make, right? Yes. I mean, it's, it's very likely. I mean, let's, let's not kid ourselves. $500 a week is not, is not a lot of money today, right? Especially to live, especially if you have a family, a young family especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the good news, at least if there's a silver lining, okay, well, within, within, this, uh, within this whole calamity, uh, is that if, if your uh, total income, if your taxable income and your family income, combined family income, is lower than what it was the year before, then, then other benefits that are based off of your net income should increase, like the Canada Child Benefit, for example, uh, or if, if yeah, that, that's or maybe you might be eligible now for the GST credit, the GST credit as well, which is the quarterly payment. So some of these benefits now become uh, you will increase because your taxable income has decreased in the year. Right, and if you're receiving benefits at the time of your filing, so what? The government doesn't care. They just they just they just want to see your paperwork, right? Yes. 
Yes, exactly. I mean, they base it. Uh, they base those benefits off of your uh, tax return. So your Canada Child Benefit, for example, is based on what you declared on your tax return. So, of course, the less income you declare, the more the benefits, uh, the more the benefits you will collect, like the Canada Child Benefit. Yeah, the reason I asked that question in a peculiar way, Jerry, is because some people seem to think that because there's nothing to declare. Listen, I, I didn't make any money this year. I made. A, I'm yeah. barely scraping by. I'm on EI. I don't have a job. There's nothing to report. There's nothing to see here. Um, and yet there is still a requirement that you do file. Is it the law, Jerry? Do you have to file as a citizen? Uh, yes, you would need to file. No, normally what the government tells you is, uh, you know, you know, they tell you you don't necessarily have to file if you owe nothing. If, right. if essentially your, your tax return is at zero, you don't necessarily have to file. I would say do it anyways uh, because for several reasons beyond even tax return. For example, the benefits that I just mentioned. Yes. If you want to collect the GST credit, if you want to collect the Canada Child Benefit, the only way you can do that is by filing a return. Uh, if you want to declare the guaranteed income supplement for those who are elderly, you have to file a tax return as well. And, for example, if you're applying for a bank loan, for example, if you're applying for a mortgage, the, uh, those, uh, you know, the investment houses and, and the banks will ask you for your notice of assessments because that's the only way they will know what type of income you made in the year. So it's absolutely crucial that you file your return, even if you owe nothing on the return. Just keep everything current. That's the ticket, isn't it, Jerry? Yes, absolutely. Keep everything up to date. That way, you know, when you, when you, when you need it, you won't have to go scrounging for it. It's there. Indeed. Jerry, great to have you back. We appreciate your joining us again this morning. It's just always good to have a, a, a sensible tax talk with someone who gets it. Thanks. Thank, thank you very much for having me. There's Jerry Vitoratos from UFile joining us this morning. Coming up this Tuesday online at 6 o'clock, there's a lecture from the Simon Fraser people entitled The Hidden Gifts of Retail, Resilience and Planning for Community Life. The lecture will be conducted by Simon Fraser University's Director of Community Economic Development Programs, Jeremy Stone, who joins us right now to talk a little bit more about this upcoming event. Jeremy, good morning. Welcome. Good morning. It's good to have you with us. Tell us more about your uh, your piece coming up on Tuesday, and are people still available to uh, to include themselves in the lecture? Yes, absolutely. Uh, if you go to the SFU website or just Google uh, President Lectures at SFU, um, you can uh, still sign up. Um, but in terms of the piece itself, the thing that, uh, as somebody who focuses on local economy and local business, the thing that I've noticed is that even though we've sort of identified some businesses as essential, uh, those that provide uh, food and um, and homewares and things like that, um, there are all these other businesses, especially retail businesses, also do provide essential functions uh, to our communities. And so um, I've been, you know, just looking at how um, certain businesses fit into developing the culture of the city, mm -hmm. providing social capital, providing space for people to come together. Um, and, and this isn't to say anything negative about um, the COVID restrictions, but it's just more of how we understand our local businesses and how we support them in, in ways that are not just narrowly focusing on things like food and 
uh, liquor stores and things like that. Sure. Well, it's interesting you the the resume that you bring to this uh, this particular talk uh, because you have in person in terms of your personal background, you've got a lot of recovery effort in your background, Jeremy. You worked in uh, in in the states uh, working on uh, the Hurricane Katrina recovery, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, uh, the disruptions in New York City and Manhattan after 9/11. You've been through some pretty tough times and in in situations where. Uh, um, serious economic blows in addition to psychological and i'm talking 9-11 uh, have been dealt and here we are another one jeremy as if life is 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 never going to stop dealing uh, uh, gut punches here's pandemic for crying out loud and so i'm curious as to whether you're th- considering renaming your 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 office uh, the director of community economic recovery as we get out of, or look to getting out of uh, this covid19 well, um, yeah, definitely one of our programs is economic resilience, and and that is something I've been promoting for years now. Is looking at uh, recoveries not just as economic recovery, but a community economic recovery, meaning that um, you know m- many times we're uh, using economic recovery programming as sort of a, a, a measure to just spread money across the economy. Right. Um, but, but when you really get down into people's neighborhoods, into people's lives, there are actually, you know, community functions that are necessary to maintain. And, and some need more support than others. Um, you know, there might be like a, a barber shop where the old folks go to and they, they talk to each other and they share information, they may share resources, they support each other. You might not see that as being an important type of function, but for the community, it's, it's dramatically important. So, um, so trying to help folks identify what businesses you know, serve that role is important. Indeed. And, and we saw this past summer, too, Jeremy, after the first wave of the pandemic and all of the restrictions and the, the total lockdown that we all went through, then the summer offered a bit of a reprieve. And it, in the process, it allowed us an opportunity to see some of our community and some of our neighborhoods, particularly in parts of the city, that we hadn't seen before. As the city hall people said, OK, you need some patios, you need to get a little more uh, opportunity to make a buck in the restaurant business. Well, here you go. Let's let's get lots of patios and and close off portions of streets. And all of a sudden, you had uh, some neighborhoods feeling almost European in the way they turned out, <laughs> with with people actually just being able to walk down streets and and interact with each other. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that um, you know the one of the good things about the pandemic is it really has forced people to. Uh, rediscover their own communities yes. and and connect with business owners in ways that they previously hadn't. And, and, you know, I think we noticed during the holiday season that a lot of people, even though, you know, Amazon is, is booming, um, I think a lot of people have found that there is great value in local business and they want to support that. And and I think the, the question now is how do we actually capture that as a culture and, and really make this embedded in the way that we look and, and work with our communities going forward. Jeremy, the uh, the title of the piece you're going to do at 6 o'clock on Tuesday is The Hidden Gifts of Retail. Now, I know you want people to show up and, and listen to the whole thing, but what do you mean? What what are the hidden gifts of retail? Give us a well, hint. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, well, to me, um, retail, you know, a lot of times we just look at retail as buying and selling things. You know, like I need socks, and so... I go to the sock store and buy socks. Yep. Uh, but 
But what I've found over the years working with small business and, and especially in doing the interviews for this, this piece coming up is that retail businesses actually um, do a lot more. And so if you start talking to people about, uh, you know, entrepreneurs about what their staff has, has done. So, you know, you've got someone who's maybe 25, 30, 35 coming through and, and working for a couple of years in a retail establishment they not only learn business and end up going on and opening their own businesses and having a better understanding of entrepreneurship, et cetera, but they also, depending on the sector, are learning um, their craft. And so, you know, one thing that we'll talk a lot about is art and, and artisans and how that we have a, a community that really puts an emphasis on, um, on the creative culture here and the arts and how that, you know, we want to, be a, a leading creative city, but a lot of our people who are coming out of Emily Carr and coming out of other universities with uh, with design and art degrees mm-hmm. end up going into retail for for some part of their career, and they learn the retail side of those things that they're going to go to make and sell later. Right, and they learn a lot about design and a lot of uh, of other skills and knowledge that we wouldn't really expect, you know, the, 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 they don't learn those things in school. They learn those things at retail. And so if we care about these things in society, then we want to actually support retail because it's a, a, a linchpin of making those, um, those industries work, but also of supporting those people in, in tenuous parts of their career before they go on and do amazing things. It has become a bit of a challenge to be so supportive, hasn't it? Our, our cousins in Ontario are right locked down again, Jeremy, and, and it's very unequal in terms of the restrictions as some of the large retail outlets have been allowed to remain open. Some of the smaller, more neighborhood, community-oriented business have been closed. Uh, and so the challenge, of course, is under these conditions to remain as supportive as possible of those local um, enterprises that are just not available to you at the at the moment. Yeah, it, it is difficult. And, you know, I mean, I think that people have different uh, capacities. You know, not everybody can go and stand in line for half an hour to get into a, a, a business, um, you know, and, and not... Some, for some folks, it's just easier to go to the big retailers. But I think overall... What's important is that we're looking for ways to support businesses that can be supported. So if you can go online and look for your local retailers, if you can go, um, you know, actually visit a small business in a safe and socially distanced way and support them, then that's the thing to do. You know, and, and I hope that people find more opportunities, especially with the quote unquote non-essential businesses to help them thrive. Indeed. So, friends, it's uh, Tuesday, 6 o'clock this coming Tuesday. It's online. It's Jeremy Stone and the hidden gifts of retail, resilience, and planning for community life. Just Google it and uh, join in if you'd like. Jeremy, have fun with this on Tuesday. And thanks very much for joining us this morning to let us know what's coming. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the show. Indeed, we'll talk again. Recent surveys show large numbers of workers in Canada's long-term care homes to be hesitant to be vaccinated, raising concerns about the effectiveness of efforts to protect vulnerable seniors. While employers cannot compel workers to be vaccinated, public health advocates are searching for ways to persuade staff in care homes to accept that the vaccines for COVID-19 are safe and effective. Here to talk about this and, and how it's going 
going to shake out in his uh, homes is Hendrik Van Rijk. Mr. Van Rijk is the Chief Operating Officer and Vice President Human Resources with H&H Care Homes, which operate five facilities here in British Columbia and three more in Alberta, better known to many as the Hamlets. Mr. Van Rijk, Hendrik, good morning and welcome. Uh, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us, sir. Uh, let's talk about the conundrum you, as the uh, uh, an executive with a, a care home company, are facing with this these new survey results. I suppose not much of a surprise to you as you monitor this, this situation daily, Hendrick. But nonetheless, for many of us on the outside... It is a little unsettling to, term, to find out that so many, such a large percentage of long-term care home workers to be reluctant at this point to be vaccinated. What do you make of it? I, you know, it's a, it's a great, uh, it is a great conundrum. Uh, it, it is, I think, a lot of it is unknown. It's the unknown of, of a vaccine that was, you know, developed in nine months. And so there's a lot of just uncertainty about side effects or possible side effects. Sure. And, and, and really, it's it's getting people informed. I think it's really the focus of our efforts uh, in the next couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, the, I was quoting from an article in which you're uh, referenced as well by Justine Hunter out of Victoria in the Globe and Mail recently. And she talks about how uh, here in British Columbia, for example, uh, seniors' long-term care homes have accounted for such a high percentage of deaths in our province, and not just in British Columbia. But uh, how then do you... As an employer in this situation, uh, tell us about the legal discussions you've had, Hendrik, because I'm sure you've had more than one, and you're probably still, still several more to come. What is the position you, as the employer uh, of all of these staff people and all of these long-term care facilities have with respect to insisting that your staff be vaccinated? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really the, it's the conversations that we're having with our staff. It's encouraging. It is. Uh, it's you know giving them the information that they need that it's safe to get. Yes, we've looked into the legal uh, ramifications of of you know looking to compel them, but I think that's really not our approach. I mean, it is really to to encourage um, uh, the bigger picture in terms of why uh, our, our our team should and and could get the vaccine. It's to protect themselves. It's to protect their families, and ultimately, it's to protect those that they care for each and every day. It's the you know it's the residents and, and the families uh, of the many people we care for in BC and Alberta. And I think it's it's just those conversations, and uh, you know we've we've encouraged through our you know our, our provincial associations to have those discussions with government. Mm-hmm. You know whether there's you know it's Dr. Henry or. You know, it's the it's the health minister in in Alberta to to publicly say and continue to say to encourage people it is safe, it is safe to get it, and it's for everyone's benefit. And I think really that's a message that we want to continue to encourage. You know, um, all employers in in BC when it comes their turn to encourage their workers to to get vaccinated. Well, I suppose, too, being in the long-term care business, you would have seen, because the same story in The Globe goes on to report that, for example, the Canadian Nurses Association, representing well over 400,000 nurses across the country, very much on side with the vaccine, Mm -hmm. and uh, the union uh, strongly encouraging its members to be vaccinated, uh, saying that they they believe the vaccines are effective and safe, and uh, the, uh, again, 
asking for trust and confidence in Health Canada and their approval process. And of course, we've got a couple more in the pipeline that Health Canada is working on right now, too. Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, it, it, I think, you know, and that's the conversations we're having with our team is, look, Health Canada wouldn't provide vaccines, much like they do the flu vaccine every year, if it wasn't safe to provide. Right. And I, I think that's really the assurance that, that everyone needs to take is we have a, a good process, a very robust process in terms of making sure that the vaccines that, uh, you know, the, the most vulnerable in our population get and the people that they care, that the people that care for them get is safe. It is yeah. really, really safe to administer. I'm really curious that because they're in the middle of, of this, you on the one side recommending, highly recommending to your employees that they become vaccinated as part of the, the, the ongoing process. In the middle, of course, are the residents, the, the people who live and are cared for in your, in your facilities, Hendrick, and their families. And I, I'm curious as to what the, uh, what the degree of insistence is from both the residents and their family members. Well, I mean, the good news is that, um, you know, for the residents that have been vaccinated so far in our in our homes, um, you know, we're we're running around 90 percent, mm-hmm. in some cases, 95 percent. So the uptake in the families or sorry, the residents has been really, really good. Uh, there's always a few that, you know, will not get the shots for, for personal reasons. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, there is there is some questions from families about, you know, are you are your workers, are your staff going to get vaccinated? Right. And and our conversation with families is, yeah, we're having those conversations um, and encouraging them and informing them uh, of the the pros and and you know the the risks. I mean, there isn't really a lot of risk, but there is some that you know we've heard those stories, and um, I think you know most of most of uh, the families have been very supportive of our approach that it, it is a personal choice but um you know they're, they're they understand that we're trying to have those conversations to make it you know somewhat of a, an accountability or responsibility for for our team to to consider getting the vaccination for for the safety of themselves and, and for uh, those they, they care for mm-hmm. so and you and of course here in british columbia and i think dr hinshaw in next door in alberta is is uh, on the same kind of priority page uh with residents of long-term care homes being among the very top of the list uh, in terms of individuals who need to be vaccinated first absolutely and 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 i agree with that approach um, you know, there, there, are, there are others, I think, that um, should be uh, in, the, in the first go, and that's those that are in, uh, in home support that go into, you know, independent living and, and assisted living facilities. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they're not on that list, and, and they should be um, because they are looking after, yeah, they're not in care, but they're, they are older, um, you know, there's lots of people in independent living that are in their 80s, 90s, and 100s. Sure. And, and, and they're they're, they're you know they've got uh, health issues, and um, they those that care for them, I think, also need to be on that priority list. And and we we're encouraging government to to consider those um, workers that go into people's uh, homes and into these uh, independent living and assisted living facilities to get the vaccine quickly as well. 
Hendrik Van Rijk is with us. Mr. Van Rijk is the COO of Human Re- and a VP Human Resources with H&H Care Homes, five of them in Alberta, in BC rather, and three in Alberta. Mr. Van Rijk, one of the things we learned early on in the pandemic was that in some care homes operating more than one facility, some workers were moving between those facilities you know, a couple of days a week in one, a couple more in another, cobbling together a week's wages by simply being in the right place at the right time for a couple of days. That practice was seized upon and uh, and frowned upon and uh, discouraged very early in the game. Does it remain in force? You work for one home, you don't go back and forth between multiple homes. Yeah, no, it is it's still in place. Uh, we have the single site order uh, in place for long-term care and assisted living. Um, there are some gaps in, in that approach. Uh, there are still um, some opportunities for for workers to work in acute care and also work in uh, long-term care and assisted living. So there's still some holes. And we also have um, those that provide home health services uh, within, say, an independent living or an assisted living home. They can go from site to site and, and provide, uh, you know, care for, to, to the seniors. So it's not perfect. Um, you know, it, the approach, you know, has worked in terms of, uh, of reducing the risk, mm-hmm. but there, there still remains that risk because of those, uh, those abilities to still work in multiple uh, job locations. Right. Uh, but of course, it's a situation that I would um, imagine is being pretty closely monitored by all parties concerned. Absolutely. I mean, they, they, they do do uh, regular checks, the, the health authorities, and, and we've, had, we've had some random situations where uh, we've had a few folks, you know, uh, be brought to our attention that were working somewhere else, and it quickly was, was, uh, was corrected. How have you managed to deal with you have five care homes in British Columbia, many of them known as the Hamlets, three more in Alberta. How have you managed to deal with visitor uh, situations in your homes? Because some have been more successfully managed than others. Yeah, it, it is a challenge. Um, early on, uh, you know, staffing and, and the dollars to support the visitation were, were a chat, were mm-hmm. a struggle for sure. Um uh, thankfully, you know the the provincial government did come forward with some funds to to help operators, um, you know, hire specifically people that could support the visitation and 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 you know overall, I think we're doing a good job in terms of of uh, getting you know families to spend some time with their loved one. It isn't ideal. I mean, it's you know one once a week. It's something you know we do our best to do you know more than that, mm-hmm. uh, but unfortunately. You know, it, it is it is resource based, and and we have to do it carefully. We have to make sure that everybody's you know carefully screened, and um, we do it in a safe space and a stay safe space in our homes. And um, but overall, it's it's going okay. Could we could we and would we like to have more visitations? Absolutely. And I, I think there's there's opportunities. You know, uh, there's tools out there like rapid testing that could provide that opportunity. And is some, and I know that Isabel McKenzie, the seniors advocate here in British Columbia, is, uh, and we had her on the program just a week or so ago, very, very much a proponent of more testing, more rigorous testing uh, uh, pretty much every time you turn around. And that would be a benefit for a situation where uh, uh, in a long-term, uh, long-term care home, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if, if we can, if we can uh, provide a tool that you know, a family member comes to the home to visit their loved one and they can, they can get a test and get results within, you know, five, ten minutes and, 
and uh, the, the you know they're clear to go and uh, visit you know and spend time with their loved one. Uh, you know that would be fantastic. I mean, it would be a, a, an, uh, I think a blessing to a lot of seniors because a lot of them are are simply lonely. Yeah. Um, you know, seeing them through a, a FaceTime or a Skype or whatever, it, it, it's helpful. But there's nothing that re, you know replaces the the human interaction and human the touch, the the hugging, the, the you know the, just the, in the same room, mm-hmm. uh, spending time together. Yep, listening to the voice, all of those, all of those key uh, button pushing things that humans rely on so much. Uh, mm-hmm. Hendrick, back to the matter of vaccinations for a few moments, if you don't mind. We talked earlier about the uh, Canadian Nurses Association, their president coming out in favor of uh, Canadian nurses being vaccinated. Now, in long term care homes, it's not a unionized environment, particularly, but there is something called the Canadian Support Workers Association, and they do represent or or speak for a lot of frontline care workers what's their take on this as a sort of a spokesperson for for workers in, in your facilities and many others like them um well i mean you know we 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 uh you know i think our our, our workers our team they're familiar with their 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 position on it i i think um any any association whether it's uh the nurse association or you know our our provincial, you know, uh, unions like HEU or BCGU, sure. you know, they've been very supportive. Mm-hmm. I mean, of their members, uh, encouraging them uh, to get vaccinated. And um, you know, we had a labor la- labor relations meeting this past week with at one of our sites, and that was a topic of conversation um, with them. And they were asking how we were doing uh, in terms of you know supporting the team, and and so they're very much. Uh, on side, um, you know, with making sure that their members uh, get vaccinated. And, you know, I think those those conversations need to continue to happen even in non-unionized sites. And, uh, you know, whatever uh, resources are out there, you know, we're trying to find those and, and provide those to our team so that, again, as I mentioned earlier, we, we want to make sure they're informed. Sure. answer all the questions about the potential risks or fears that people have. Yeah, one of the things there, one of the problems they're running to in Ontario, running into in Ontario, rather, Hendrick, is is the logistical one. Uh, they, for example, aren't able to vaccinate as many long-term care home residents as they want to because they require the residents to come to them because of mm-hmm. the fr- freezing nature of the vaccine. You were saying that you've had a, a, a fairly significant number of residents of your homes uh, vaccinated. Were, were they able to be vaccinated in their in in the home, or did they have to leave the facility? No, no, they they the uh, the, the clinic came to us. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, and so you know, uh, it, there's some logistical things to figure out. You know, in terms of the you know the, the transport, as everybody's heard about, um, and but it worked. Uh, you know, the the team that came uh, in, we had it in two situations in Fraser Health and in in, uh, in the IHA. And, and the, the system worked really, really well. Um, the team came from the local health authority with our team, and within a few hours, we, we had lots of, of our residents uh, vaccinated. Well, so let's, let's hope that more and more of those uh, vaccinations take care, uh, continue uh, with both residents and staff. Henrik van Rijk, thanks very much for uh, joining us this morning. It's an informative uh, half hour of uh, your time. We appreciate very much. It uh, allows us to understand what's going on behind the scenes a little better. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks.
Thanks for having me. There's Hendrik Van Rijk, the COO and VP Human Resources with H&H Care Homes. It's time to check in with ArtsBC. Elliot Hart is with us. Elliot is Director of Programs and Services with ArtsBC. Good morning and thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure, Elia. Tell us, first of all, how 2020 went for Arts BC before we look ahead to what the plans are for this new year. How was last year? Uh, Well, there's absolutely no question uh, the impact of COVID-19 on arts and culture sector. Uh, In fact, statistics are now showing the impact has been even greater than that of the restaurant industry. Um, arts and culture, it's uh, primarily made up of nonprofit organizations and self-employed individuals, and we've always been operating on the margins of financial sustainability. Sure. <laughs> so, that, you know, the problems with that have definitely shown through. I think um, we've already seen a loss, a huge loss of venues. Uh, festivals, uh, community art spaces. Mm. I, I think we're really facing the real possibility of losing a lot more. Uh, and a lot of people, uh, a lot of skilled workers, musicians, artists, technicians, uh, production managers, lighting designers have already left the sector. I suppose the, if, if there is to be a, a bright spot or some kind of silver lining to all of this, Elliot, it would be the fact that, that at least in one corner of the arts sector of the economy, the film sector has is flourishing. It shut right down and is now, as I understand it, operating at a, at a capacity that it was its even greater capacity than before the pandemic closed them down in the first place. Even greater, bounced right back. And that's not the only silver lining. Um, You know, it's clear there's been a huge change in awareness and understanding of how vital arts, culture, and creative activity is to well-being of individuals and community health. Um, And I I can't imagine certainly experiencing this without having film and music, uh, online concerts, the the ability to dance and sing and do knitting in my home. I mean, we're very lucky to be in Canada and B.C. in particular, um, where the support has been incredible. Um, You know, an absolute lifeline to so many artists and organizations. I, I have to do a shout out to the staff and board at the BC Arts Council. The, the work they've done to get the emergency funds out the door and to get the film industry back up and going, it's absolutely incredible. And there are even new funds that have been created to give money to those who have not yet been able to get them. You know, we're very, very much in a better position than basically every other other province in the country. Yeah, no question about it. Andrew and I have been doing a series for the last, actually, almost three months now, Elliot, on mm-hmm. on our Sunday, in this spot on our Sunday show, we've been canvassing all sorts of community arts organizations all around Metro Vancouver and the island and uh, and uh, theater groups and, uh, and, and just talking with people like you who are in charge at the local level. And they're all saying basically the same thing. We're just, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to hang in here. It's by our <laughs> fingernails, but we're, 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 they're so determined to get Absolutely. through this thing and and again and they all say exactly what you said and I've, i was so comforted to hear you say it to imagine imagine going through all of this with no music with no color uh, with no art 
I mean, it's, it is unimaginable. And so for all of those performers, particularly, who just haven't had a chance to do anything except on Zoom, which, <laughs> which is okay, but there's nobody in the room to let you yeah. know how you're doing. And, and they kind of rely on that. So, but the energy is just phenomenal, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, artists have always been at the forefront of everything, of social change, of, uh, you know, of the resilience, of recovery. Arts and culture is a huge part of recovery in any time of crisis, if you look at history. And again, we are investing in the arts. We are seeing that support when we need it most. And, and again, also the public support. People are seeing that. Can you imagine without the music? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's huge. I think we're seeing actually a real turn in public's perception and and really the understanding that art, it's essential. This isn't a nice-to-have add-on first on the chopping block, right, for Mm -hmm. the budget. This is really an essential part of of life and quality of life. Absolutely. And we had the uh, British Columbia COO of uh, Mental Health, Canadian Mental Health Mm -hmm. Association on earlier this morning, and Johnny um, Morse was talking to us about precisely that, the need for distraction, the need to do something as simple as get up and go for a walk around the block, uh, uh, listen to a a song, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, indulge in in a few moments of of other activity that distracts you from whatever's bugging you. And inevitably, it, it veers towards the arts, doesn't it? So as we look ahead towards 2021, we're already there, but what do you see? We've only got a minute or so here, Elliot, but what you're Mm -hmm. talking about, a reduction of activity, and I guess September is what it's all about, right? Yes, I I think that there's there's some good and some bad. I think uh, we're seeing a lot of burnout in the arts. It's been a very challenging time for artists and organizers to really pivot as the key word here. Uh, So I I have a fear that we're going to lose more uh, cultural workers to other sectors. Yep. Um, and I think that the key there, again, it, it's the future is really tied to recovery plans, but also to public support. I, I think we really need to think about what we want, what we want at the end of this. What do you want to be able to do? I mean, I certainly want to be able to go to the symphony, but I also want to be able to go to a local band show at the rickshaw. Sure. So we need to invest in the arts, you know, buy tickets to online concerts, Support your local musicians, buy locally made pottery, enroll in an online dance class. All right, Elliot, I have to leave it there. I'm fresh out of time and very grateful for yours. Our ArtsBC, one word, ArtsBC.org is where you'll find out what Elliot and all of her colleagues are up to. Thanks for this and thumbs up for 2021. We'll talk again going forward, okay? Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You too. Uh, Thanks to Julie Wong, of course, for another terrific ride. And I can't leave the program in the airwaves today without taking two seconds to congratulate veteran Canucks broadcaster, Hockey Hall of Fame member, Jim Robson. Happy birthday, Jim. It's number 86. You never look better. Have a great week.